This week I sat down on Zoom with Dr. Kiran. We had a great chat about self-compassion. I recorded it on Zoom and I didn't really know what I was doing, so it's not the best audio. So please forgive that. The content, though, is fantastic. Enjoy. Hello, I'm here today with clinical psychologist and social media sensation, Dr. Kiran Schnack. I've already interviewed Dr. Kiran for our Facebook group, Mindfulness in Daily Life, in which he gave a practice called Kind Hands. It went down very well with the audience. So today, I have invited her here to share the same practice along with anything else that she deems helpful in our development of self-compassion. Dr. Kiran, welcome and thank you for taking this interview. Thank you, Chris. It's uh, really a, a delightful to be here. I'm really pleased uh, to be able to come and talk again with you. And I really enjoyed being on the Mindfulness in Daily Life um, on the Facebook group last time. It was so, uh, such a wonderful experience. So thank you. You're welcome. I've told everyone about this and they're all excited to hear what you, what you say next, what you teach next. Um, so I've got some questions to put to you. Um, I'm currently reading um, Kristin Neff. She's an author and she's championed self-compassion. And she states that it's not the same as self-esteem. Self-esteem looks out into the world and makes comparisons. It says, I should feel good about myself because I live in a nice house or I'm doing well in my career. But of course, our position in the world can change in an instant. So self-esteem, I think, is on shaky ground. Self-compassion, she says, on the other hand, cultivates love and appreciation, appreciation for oneself, irrespective of external circumstances. And in our times of need, it actually deepens, whereas self-esteem can fall apart. So there's a resilience to it that I don't think we find in self-esteem. Can you speak a little on cultivating this resilience? Um, yeah, absolutely. First of all, I love the book, uh, Chris, that you mentioned. I think it's Kristin Neff's book on self-compassion. Yeah. Is that the one? Yeah, it's one of she's my favourites. She's got favorite. a few, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She's, she's amazing. She, she used to be a Buddhist nun, I believe. Oh, really? I didn't, I didn't know that. I know that she's yeah. a person as well. And she, some of the work that she's done around, well, a lot of it around in self-compassion has been, you know, iconic, actually, and has informed so much clinical practice around resilience and trauma. So, um, yeah, I absolutely love, love uh, Kristin Neff. Um, I think uh, talking about resilience is, um, people ask me this a lot, and I think, you know, how I see resilience is the capacity for stress-related growth to take place and for yes. people to have gone through stress and through that stress, the way that they've related 
to what's happened and the way that they have um, taken care of themselves has helped them bounce back and grow and sometimes actually even into a more uh, even stronger person than they were before the stress that they suffered. Um, And, you know, from people have all kinds of trauma in their lives, whether it's adversity in childhood or trauma in childhood or adulthood or a situation in adult life or a work situation. And I think you can develop resilience for all these things, for small things that cause stress and trauma. And then, you know, there's life-changing trauma that can still be overcome. And I think developing what is cultivating resilience about is in my opinion and in my work it's about the person being able to develop some sense of control over their life after what's happened because they are still in control of what they can do and how they can help themselves and being active in helping themselves making a commitment to help themselves and investing in that through experience you know so you know through self-acceptance and and experiences and it sounds all a bit airy-fairy and woolly so I'm going to give some more practical kind of tips of what I'm talking about uh, that helps cultivate resilience and I think the first thing I said was about being active participant in helping yourself because nobody else is going to act for you and be able to help you And people sometimes say, well, where do I start? What shall I do? And I say, pick one thing that you feel might help you feel a little bit better, a little bit more confident, and start taking small steps towards doing that one thing. For somebody, it might be, um, you know, they might want to improve their social connection because they've been isolated. So one step might be to re-engage with a safe person by sending a message or a card, you know, whatever that thing is, just act, acting is, is, is one of the things. I think one of the other things, uh, Chris, that's crucial is that people build up a toolkit of coping strategies because trauma, tra- trauma and stress of any kind cause people to, ex- you know, re-experience the wounds that they've suffered and we can get stuck and locked into thinking and overthinking what's happened and we know from you know all the scientific research that mindfulness um, and relaxation training is very very effective way um, and a good coping resource for helping with things like that so I think it's in the person's interest to develop coping skills and by that I mean sleeping well eating well and making sure that you are doing things that help your body and mind, like mindfulness is, is a biggie for me, as you know. And mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, that's the, that's the second thing. So acting in the ways that help you move forward, building up coping strategies and giving yourself the things that you need. And I think the, 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 there's many things I could talk about. But one more that I will mention is that being um, flexible in the way that you think and I think a lot of people that have suffered stress and trauma can have get stuck in a certain way of thinking about themselves and about other people. Um, you know, sometimes that might be that a person blame themselves for what happened. Yeah. Or it might be that the person can't think past their life will never be better. And I think embracing the idea of flexibility, that there isn't just one way of, of things being and feeling um, yes. There are other alternatives and other possibilities. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I work a lot or I've worked a lot with people that have suffered uh, childhood abuse and trauma. And I tell people all the time, if you're a child who's experienced trauma, it does not matter what you did or you didn't do. There is no scenario on this earth in which you have any blame 
uh, or part to play in that because sometimes adults will say to me well uh, you know I did that person I knew had done whatever they'd done to me already did say to me do you want to come or meet me in the garden or meet me in the garage or let's go and get and I, I didn't say no I just went with them and as it's very easy to look through the flexibility of your adult mind at your child self who's not evolved and doesn't have that cognitive capacity and say well you should have done this this and this so as an adult you're being able to be flexible so I think use that flexibility <coughs> to widen your scope of self-understanding so that, that, those are my three tips on on cultivating uh, resilience excellent so you you're talking about um flexibility um, I've heard Stephen Hayes talk about psychological flexibility. Is that is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. And you touched on um, growth after trauma. I've heard the phrase post-traumatic growth, which I think is incredible, and that needs to get out there a little bit more. People need to know that, you know, a trauma can actually be the making of you, can it? Would I be right in saying that? 100% Chris I think it is I think that is true you know there are people that suffer trauma that actually don't have any growth and that's they feel like their life is finished and that that's that's them forever now but there is definitely and um without a doubt and I meet so many people that have suffered um unimaginable unspeakable trauma that you would not know from seeing um you know, these people in the public sphere or in their everyday lives, um, they've been able to have that post-traumatic growth. Um, it is something, I think you're right, that needs to get out there. And I think, you know, um, it's um, not something that's spoken about uh, that much. Um, I think Everybody knows about uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, but nobody seems to know about the growth bit. Mm-hmm. yeah and I think there's such a focus on with uh, you know when we're looking at flexibility there's such a focus on the impact and effects of trauma and there's so much on social media about here's five signs that you've suffered from trauma or you're traumatized if you have this and I think as society sometimes we get focused on matching ourselves to criteria that that is what's wrong with me and I think keeping connected with these descriptions of what's wrong with us and seeing them again and again just keeps us locked into over pathologizing um, our struggle which can be quite disabling and there was some research on you know when we give out a diagnosis to somebody sometimes if I see somebody and they've got a clinical depression um, I might not say to them your diagnosis is clinical depression because the research shows us when you give a label to somebody and they leave with a piece of paper saying that's what my Dis disorder is that they're much they're more likely actually to struggle than if we say you've got some depressive symptoms and this is how we're going to work on trying to solve them that it's not such a it's not as disabling and I, so I think language is is really important in trying to get that flexibility but post-traumatic growth is a is a thing um for sure and I don't talk about myself personally very much but I've experienced post-traumatic post growth myself uh chris so i'll 100 stand by uh just what you said that you can that people can and do um there is such a thing and there isn't suffering is not the only outcome available to us that's excellent um thinking again on um self-compassion our culture it 
acknowledges compassion for others as being noble. And it seems to glorify quite the reverse in dealing with our own suffering, as if somehow we are less deserving than others or it's narcissistic to care for others. What, what would you say about that? Do you have any reflections on that? And do you think society is starting to change at last? Yeah, yeah. I think society is changing because you see a lot more now on, on social media, for example, and in, in the media, um, and I particularly during the pandemic, I'm sure you've noticed that Pete, the, the idea of, you know, five ways to have a self-care Sunday or how five ways to um, love yourself. I think I, I see a lot of these kinds of posts and quotes and it's little snippets in, in magazines. So I think there is some change because there's much more of that yeah. accessible and available. You agree? Yeah. Than Absolutely. And I'm seeing it as a, as put forward as a strength whereas before it was put forward as a, as a weakness it's like wow you're brave enough to get in front of a camera and say you don't feel great I've actually um <clears throat> I've given talks some of the best talks I've given have come from a state when I've I've been on a downward spiral and I've not been feeling great people have responded far better to that and they've been you know, almost motivated because they've seen that. And then two days later, I'll do another post and I'll say, I'm feeling great. I meditated. I looked after myself. I ate well. Yeah. The upward spiral started and everything's good again. So it gives them hope. They see a living example of what it's like to be down and then to see the lift happen. Yeah. Yeah, completely. I really love uh, that you do that, Chris, because I don't think that people like us that are in the job of helping other people, you know, that's how I see myself. That's how I view you, if that's okay to say that, you know, we sometimes, you know, especially professionals, I think in, in my field and in the medical field, we don't heal out loud. And people don't hear things like that about us. And I think it's so powerful for people, um, to, to know that because it like you said it gives them a real life um, experience that they can engage with and they can see where you were and where you are now and what you you talking about what you did to lift yourself out of that spiral I think that's really powerful stuff yeah yeah I'm going to keep doing it it, it really yeah. works it seems to help people it's yeah, tough we, to do um, it's tough to do but because at first I was like you know I teach mindfulness can I show this face because people will turn around and they'll say, well, you do all this meditation and look at the state of you. Mm. Um, but no, the reverse has happened. They're like, wow, number one is human. Um, he has his sufferings and failings too. And number two, here's the proof. Two days later, he's smiling from ear to ear. Yeah. Yeah, that's brilliant. And, uh, people ask me sometimes, have you got, what's your experience of, um, so I have I have put on my Instagram that I've got lived experience. I don't really talk about it because we have some rules around, you know, how much we are allowed to disclose about ourselves. But mm. you know, uh, I don't go into detail. But I think even in in my um, in the field of clinical psychology, it's not that acceptable yet because occasionally when I have spoken. Um, or said something, you know, essentially we're all wounded healers. It doesn't go down, uh, it's people, I think that's professionals, but actually the audience are very welcoming of it because it helps them know that you know what the struggle, you've experienced struggle and adversity yourself. 
Um, just going back to your question, you asked about is society changing? I said, I think, I think there is. And you said about, is it this association with, um, potentially with, with the, you know, caring so much and being so compassionate that we're tipping into narcissism. I think you said something. Yes. Yeah. 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 And people do ask me this when I say to patients that you need to really take care of yourself and be more self-compassionate. And actually last week, a patient said to me, how do I know when I reach the line of I've gone too much into it and it's become unhealthy um, and I'm narcissistic or that I'm just letting myself off the hook too easily by being too compassionate? And when is it healthy? Uh, the first thing to say is there's actually been studies on self-compassion and there's found to be no association whatsoever between self-compassion and narcissism, mm. which is really interesting. And yes. I think because part of self-compassion is loving yourself, accepting and understanding and being open to your experiences, thoughts, feelings and suffering. And I think to have those qualities and be able to be compassionate also implies that you are wanting to see other people in the same light if that makes sense totally yeah absolutely yeah whereas narcissism is about needing other people to not be seen in a better way than you so that wouldn't come from a place of self-compassion because if you were truly self-compassionate you wouldn't really be thinking in that way about somebody else so I think there isn't an association there is not that association absolutely I, I would agree with that totally yeah it's almost like an old idea um, dying out I remember there was a phrase when I was a child growing up like who does she think she is you know that sort of um, if somebody felt well about themselves um, they would be instantly put down and they weren't narcissistic they were just you know happy yeah confident happy yeah yeah, yeah. They were just, and and I think people were just reflecting that they weren't and and they were envious of of those traits and I think even nowadays sometimes people say who does she think she is doing um uh you know behaving in that way or who does he think he is and I think you yeah. know good for those people who feel able to you know be who they want to be without the judgment of others um you know narcissism is about external validation where self-compassion is about you validating yourself from the inside so i think that yes. there is, um, there's one kind of uh so, so the person who asked me about this last week i said to them you know you could be oh they had a good point because they said if i'm staying in bed all day and not doing any work and I say I can watch I can watch another movie because I'm feeling down. But then I've watched eight films and I've only done an hour's work in a 40-hour working week. And I've not really, you know, I've been just really unhealthy. And I keep saying to myself, well, this is compassionate. Where does it, where's the tipping point and where's the line? Um, and I say, when you when those behaviors have gone into an unhealthy pattern, it's is it unhealthy for me to have stayed in bed the entire week and only watched four movies every single day I would say yeah that's unhealthy behavior because that's not going to help your mind and body in the long term but if you're doing that because you decided in it's setting intention as well part of self-compassion is that you've set the intention yes. to treat yourself in a certain way and I think if that's just happening that's not self-compassion that might be a symptom of depression that you're struggling in that way yeah you've got to be careful I guess because it can become the start of a downward spiral um, I've recently read the book. We read it as a group, Wintering by Catherine May. And um, she's encouraging this sort of, um, you know, downing tools for winter. 
and and re um, regenerates in over winter. And I found I actually found because I suffer from seasonal affective disorder. I, I really I get quite low in winter, and um, I found taking a, her advice not to be that helpful because I started to notice myself sliding down. Yes, I wanted to stay in bed, relax, be easy on myself, but I knew I needed to get outside. I knew, I'm not saying that was her advice, but her advice, I was taking it as to be, go so easy on yourself that, you know, hibernate. And I, I, I switched yeah. to hibernation mode. Yeah. And that is, you know, doing nothing is associated with the uh, symptoms of depression and it maintains depression. So I say to people, anything that you've done for too long, actually, that's not self-compassion anymore. It's that something, yeah. there's something else going on at, at that point. Um, and, uh, you know, simple things to remind ourselves, are we being self-compassionate? You know, are we waking up and cleaning and washing ourselves if we need to? Are we feeding ourselves regularly? Are we making sure that we're getting enough sleep? And if you're not following those basic things, then are we doing anything, any activities that we're doing every day? Is there at least one thing that's nourishing us or is everything just depleting us mentally and physically? Um, so there, there, there are, there's ways to tell when you've tipped into that, um, which is hard, yeah. isn't it, in society nowadays, when it, the rhetoric is, you know, let yourself just accept everything as it is. Uh, yes. It's difficult to know where the boundaries lie. Absolutely, because I've noticed as well, <clears throat> my mood is so dependent upon what I eat. Now, is it self-compassionate to eat chocolate and pizza for a week? It's absolutely not. <laughs> Um, you could pass it off. You could use it as an excuse. You know, I deserve it. I'm, you know, I'm not feeling great. It makes me feel better, maybe for a day or so. But there's a point where you're actually destroying yourself, isn't there? Yeah, and I think people, when you do that, you know, when you feel, <laughs> when you start to feel bad about eating the fifth pizza on the day five, you will know when it's become unhelpful because you'll start to not like it and start to feel bad about it. Yes. And that's your, that's your emotional, you know, your emotions are there giving you a message to stop and change. Absolutely. Is, is there anything we can do? <clears throat> I guess if, if we get to that, um, do you have any advice for us to, I hate the phrase, but snap out of that snapping out of the um you know when you get the stuck into being yeah 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 um i think the really important things and especially for people that suffer with depression um you know anxiety or agoraphobia where they can get stuck in in the situation or stuck indoors or stuck in a, in, a, in a kind of a rut is i say you know first of all trying to work on your routine and that doesn't mean you have to come up with a fabulous timetable for the rest of the week but setting the intention before the end of the day today I will scribble out on a piece of paper what time I'm going to wake up what what time what I will have for my breakfast what I will have what time I'll have lunch what time I'll eat my evening and then the white spaces in between fill them in with something that you think is doable so sometimes it might just be I can't go for a walk but I can go and stand in the garden for 10 minutes uh, or the afternoon activity might be, you know, I might, I might send them emails that I've been meaning to send and do a bit of work. Um, but building, and I think especially if people have got stuck in a very, very repetitive and deep cycle, it's really small steps and then building, just increasing Absolutely. them day by day. 
And if you have another day where you get back into that, stuck into that, just start again the next day that this is, but I think setting intention is so important because if you don't, you know, I have days where I don't really have a plan at the weekends. We just go with the flow, but we just then see what happens and we'll meet it and we'll do it. But when there isn't a plan, that can be good sometimes. But if you're stuck in a, a rut mentally and that you don't have a plan, your day will just is most likely to just continue as it has been the pattern for what, however many days you've been doing that yeah. uh, unhelpful um, stuff for. So it depends on what the person wants and needs, but that's a good starting point. I think just making a little, you know, eight till eight thirty, I'll wake up and giving yourself enough time. If you know it's hard for you to get out of bed, don't say, you know, I'll, I'll wake up at eight and by eight thirty, I'll be showered, ready, dressed and had breakfast and ready to face the day. You probably won't be because if that's not what you've done for three weeks, you're not going to suddenly um, do it. And I think that's sometimes a self-sabotage that people think I have to suddenly come out of this. It's a gradual yes. change. Yes. What what really helps me is um, Alex Corb. He's actually coming on in a week or so. Um, Alex Corb's book, um, The Upward Spiral, and that's that's it's a brilliant book. And he basically he says, um, you know, you just do one little thing to set that spiral because while ever we're going down, it's gaining momentum and we're slipping further into a depression. But if we can just do one tiny positive thing, we start the spiral going up. It might be we eat an apple instead of the pizza, but then we've started. So we're, we're, we're moving in the right trajectory. Um, <clears throat> so self-compassion, how can it help our mental well-being? We've almost gone over that, but I don't know if you've got anything else to say on that. Yeah, um, well, obviously, you know, Chris, there's a lot of evidence that self-compassion uh, helps our mental health and well-being. Um, and there's decades uh of research now and compassion focused therapy which is um what Kristin Neff writes about and uh people that I've done training with like Paul Gilbert who's a psychologist um yes. who has really championed um CFT and ACT these kinds of therapies have originated from um Kristin Neff's work on self-compassion um and, and self-compassion because we know that it helps us being taking a stance of self-kindness towards ourselves instead of self-judgment helps us feel less bad about ourselves and it means that we're not in a state of emotional suffering because we're not berating ourselves and beating ourselves up yes and I think another way it helps us is because part of self-compassion is that you understand and accept that pain and suffering are part are a common a part of common humanity that yes. any person who is human is going to have pain and suffering and um yeah. in some of the actor lit literature it cites uh you know where there's joy there's pain and you can't have one without the other yeah and self-compassion is something that yeah practices that principle that you know if you've got children for example or you have a partner or you have a friend that those relationships are a source of a lot of joy but through that joy there is also pain because sometimes your partner's going to do something that you don't like or your children are going to uh, you know drive you up the wall that or if you've got a job that you really love sometimes there's going to be pressure so that you know where there's joy simultaneously expecting pain and I think that helps self-compassionate view that is that that is a part of common humanity rather than yes. something that we have to say because I can't cope with this or that because this is happening to me it means there's something wrong with me yeah and it's not seeing it as a failure that you're having them struggles that that is just part of being human yeah 
you know, and having the desire to help yourself through those problems rather than uh, telling yourself off or beating yourself up, that um, trying to be productive um, in how you see them challenges, um, that, um, it, you know, help stabilize your feelings of self-worth instead of uh, becoming, uh, yeah, you know, quite anti, anti yourself because you're experiencing problems. It's about being open-minded to the vast uh, range of experience that you have as a human being and I think there's such a obsession with we have to be happy and positive all the time it's not it's not real yeah exactly I I've heard that called out recently as um toxic positivity yeah because it's it's it doesn't work you know it works for a while for two or three days maybe and then you're like oh wait a moment I don't feel positive. Something's wrong. It's not wrong. You're just going through the whole spectrum of human emotion. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I was going to ask as well, um, that wonderful practice you did, Kind Hands, um, I got a lot out of that. There was a point, though, when my harsh inner critic jumped in and said, what about the less kind things you've done with your hands? Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything we can do to silence him when he perks up and he he tries to ruin that kind of practice? Yeah. Um, It's not easy, is it, Chris? You know, it's not, and it's not that simple. And, you know, I always say to people, there's no magic in this. This is not some, you know, uh, amazing tool that's going to transform your life. But what will transform and help you is a commitment, practice and time and intention towards yourself and making the effort to train your mind to become more sensitive to your thoughts and feelings. So it's natural for us to criticize ourselves and tell ourselves off. And it's harder sometimes to be self-compassionate. And I think when that happens to people, I would just say, accept that it is going to happen. It's something that we're used to doing and become more sensitive and curious about why is it that my mind is pulling me in the direction of, um, you know, some of the unkind things that my hands have done or the unkind words that I've spoken. And I think being open to those things helps you to be open to your suffering because people do unkind things when they're suffering. And I think remembering that is really important and being open to that is what's going to help people. It's hard to do because when we have bad feelings of of being unkind or angry or we've acted out of line, we want to suppress those feelings because they make us feel like we're a bad person. So we don't really want to connect with it. Yeah. I think once we can be open to them, we can learn to have them around us and be more tolerant of them. And once we can tolerate them, we can empathize towards our self and who we were and understand how we became to think and behave in those unkind ways that we did at that time. And how can we use self-compassion to help understand, you know, that mean thing that we may have said or done uh, on that occasion. And to give an example, a parent said to me that they um, were really, really cross with, uh, you know, at home one day and they, they threw something in the kitchen, like a, a cup or a plate, and it broke something. It broke, it chipped a bit of the worktop. And when they see that little chip on the worktop, it reminds them of how 
horrible they can be and how much of a bad person they are. And I said, you know, if we're taking a self-compassionate view of that, what we're curious about is understanding what happened that day that led you up to that point. What stresses, what were you trying really hard to hold together all day? What was difficult for you? You know, if you were trying to understand that a child doing something like that, you wouldn't say, oh, you ought to eternally feel bad for what you did. That was absolutely disgraceful. You were clearly a very unkind and horrible person. Yeah. You know, we'd be saying something like, you you know, it's really hard. You're by yourself. You're trying to look after five four, four or five children and you've got a job and it's not easy and you're tired. You've not slept well. You're feeling frustrated. And that's probably why you threw something means is it a sign that you need to take care of yourself and I think it's easy to jump to criticism isn't it but that would be my advice trying to be more accepting of suffering and open and curious about what is it that led me to behaving in that way and it's always pain Chris yeah I would say as well um a bad person if there is such a thing wouldn't feel bad about it I think the fact that there is some remorse there is actually showing you that you've grown and moved on and and given the right um, circumstances, anybody could do something like that. You know, we're all, we all fall under, under pressures as you were just saying, you know, if you're managing five screaming kids and trying to cook and whatever is, you know, you're going to lose it once in a while. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're right about um, I completely, um, I'm with you on that, that capacity to feel bad about something afterwards is a really good, you know, people don't like guilt and don't like bad feeling, but that's, you know, the capacity to have those feelings is a good thing. Um, And as parents, people do things all the time. And the most important thing is not that you did that thing. It's the reparation and the explanation going back to your kids and saying, I'm really sorry that I threw that cup. I really lost it because I was feeling so hungry. I didn't take good care of myself today. Um, And I probably need a rest because you're, not just explaining you're giving them a chance to talk about it and you're de you know it's helping them not to be frightened and it's also teaching them actually we need to fill our cup we need to take care of ourselves and that's what I'm going to do now and that's really um and a lot of the trauma literature around um children and parenting it's a really powerful thing to go back and do that reparation with a child if you have done something that you you're then worried about and feeling guilty about instead of trying to block it out and suppress it as something cringy revisit it and and explain you know I was feeling this way and yeah yeah um we're actually running out of time I did have some more questions but I guess I can save them for next time I just wondered if you could lead us through one of your practices one of your guided practices for two minutes yes I do I have a really beautiful one um Chris that I'm going to talk through um hopefully we've got enough time to get through it so I'll try to um, um, I have a few so we have to save the other one uh, for next time okay so this is a practice from acceptance and commitment therapy and it's about um, because we're talking today about resilience and self-compassion this is about giving support and self-compassion to the younger you okay so um, what I want you to do is you start by you know sitting in a comfortable place Um, and taking a few deep breaths and what you're going to do is travel back in time to visit the younger version of yourself you want to visit this person that you were when you were younger at a point in life when you were struggling and for whatever reason the support that you needed wasn't available to you 
spend a few moments thinking about about that and connecting with the time at which you want to re-engage with this younger you. It can help to close your eyes or fix your gaze on one spot if it's difficult to close your eyes. So if you imagine yourself traveling into a time machine and you've arrived at the time and place to visit the younger you who is struggling for one reason or another, I want you to make contact with the younger you and look at this child, teenager or young adult version of yourself and get a real sense of what they're going through. Are they crying? Are they angry, upset or frightened? Maybe they feel guilty or ashamed. What does this person really need? Do they need love, kindness, understanding, forgiveness or acceptance? In a calm and gentle voice, tell this younger you that you know what has happened and that you know what they've been through and you know how much it's hurt them. Tell them that they don't need anyone else to validate them because you know. Tell this younger you that they got through this difficult patch in their life and now it's a distant memory. Tell them that you're here for them and how much this truly hurts them will be temporary and that you're here to help in any way that you can. Ask this younger you if there's anything they need or want from you. Maybe they want you to take them to some special place. Maybe they want a hug, a kiss or words of encouragement. Whatever it is that they want, give it to them. Tell this younger person that they need to hear and to accept and understand that there's nothing wrong with them and they don't need to blame themselves. Tell them that you are there for them, that you care for them and you'll do whatever you can to help them get through this and you will be back to visit them again and again and again and to offer kindness and support in any way that you can through words, gestures and deeds and through anything else that they want from you. Once you've got a sense that your younger you has accepted your kindness, your caring and your compassion, take a few moments to say goodbye to them. Leave them with a gift of some sort to symbolise a connection that you've made with them. This might be you know, something imaginary like a toy, a teddy bear or an item from childhood, a clothing or a book, anything that springs to mind. Take a few moments to say goodbye and tell them that you'll be back to see them again. And then in your own time, get back in your time machine and come back to the present. When you arrive back at the present, reconnect with your body through breathing and stretching and re-engage with the world around you using your eyes and your ears and connect with where you are now. Wow, that was really powerful, really powerful. I nearly started to cry, actually. I, I, I was tearing up, I'm not going <laughs> to lie. <laughs> a, the, the sides of my eyes are quite moist. Um, that was, yeah. I can see, wow. That is, I'd normally take a longer time over it, but because we were at, it's something to do more slowly, but it, hopefully it gives like a snapshot of, you know, sometimes having a practical technique that people can use to go back to a painful memory can help 
process things in a different way. So they're not we're not held by those wounds in such a negative and difficult way. It helps this kind of healing. It's quite you know it helps repair some of the hurt and pain that feels like is unprocessed. So I really love this one. But yeah, it's very powerful. <laughs> unprocessed, and so therefore that has the potential to heal us in our current state I, I would assume is that correct yeah absolutely yeah, yeah absolutely um, that was wonderful and I, I I was telling myself you know trust me this is gonna everything's gonna work out absolutely fine far better than you could imagine it yeah. might be tough now but you've got a great future ahead of you yeah absolutely that was beautiful. Thank, um, you. thank you so much. Um, before we go, I'm sure people are going to want to connect with you. Um, they were last time from the group. So if you could um, let people know your details, your, your TikTok, I'm sure they'll love to see your Michael Jackson movie. <laughs> <laughs> and your Instagram. So what, what are your details? What can they get hold of you? So, yeah, I'm at Dr. Kiran, K-I-R-R-E-N, um, on Instagram and on TikTok. Um, so, yeah, it'd be wonderful to connect with um, people uh, on either of the platforms. Um, and brilliant. And every uh, week on via my Instagram, I offer free sessions as well to people, um, Chris. These are for people that. who are struggling, yeah, financially. So most that. people that I've worked with have, you know, they're, you know, sometimes, you know, people have got resources and that, you know, say if you, if you, you know, live in a great big house and you own a yacht, this is not for you. You know, they're people without health insurance or they're in countries where they can't get help. And some of them are, are in poverty. So, you know, that, that's what um, I'm trying to help, uh, you know, offer some support to people like that. So um, I don't know uh, if any of, um, you know, that, that I'm open to helping people is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Oh, um, such a light. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank really you. Thank you so much it. for having me. And your website before you go. Yeah, the website is my surname, which is Schnack, drschnack.com, S-C-H-N-A-C-K.com. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming. Thanks, Chris. It's been lovely to see you again. Yes, you too. See you again soon. Take care. Thank you again, as ever, to kind patrons of this show that's Henrietta Nemeth Bonnie Harper and Lizzie Bell if you enjoyed this do subscribe on Podbean that's mindfulnessman.podbean.com or you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts thank you